electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk of the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber. Futures are steady on a Washington-centric morning. We've got a Fed decision, big tech at House Judiciary, Mnuchin Pelosi talks, and one of the busiest days of earnings season. This morning, we've got the CEOs of Boeing, AMD, Starbucks, eBay, GE, and JetBlue. Jim, uh, occasionally we get these days where it is going to be a struggle just to keep up. Well, look, I think that all of these have one thing in common. They all believe that the future is a little bit better and a little bit faster to come than many of us believe. It is rather remarkable to see a consensus overnight from companies that basically say, you know what? Darn COVID full speed ahead. And that includes Boeing. I know we're going to talk to Boeing, but Boeing has what I regard as being a very bullish scenario involving good cash, involving the possibility of returning to uh, much more uh, flight in, uh, let's say, the next year. And even after 1,600 uh, flights of of the 737, I'm not going to call it max anymore. That could come back. So I don't know. I think we're going to have a hard time keeping this market down today unless uh, Fang keeps us down because the hearings go badly. Yeah, we got a couple of companies uh, raising guidance today, Jim. AMD's among them. And you'll talk to Lisa Sue later on this morning. Uh, eBay, the other one uh, that uh, raised guide. Yeah. And Starbucks had a lot of good things to say. Uh, we also have analysts. The analysts are the analysts are acting as if this is the single greatest time to recommend stocks, as opposed to 30 days ago, which may have been the single greatest time to recommend stocks. It's an exciting time, but in a lot of ways, you're you, you're with an uh, Adam Jonas Tesla call, which is like, hey, you know what, Tesla? Turns out it's going to be a big car company. Well, no, it, it, that doesn't really get me anywhere. But it's being said there are a lot of positives when I look at, at what's going on. Uh, with a lot of the companies, I say the analysts are taken by surprise how strong things really are. David, you know yeah. the optimism. It, it comes in waves. The analysts are all optimistic. There's a lot of optimism out there. There's no doubt. I think, listen, viewers, after the series of CEOs that we have join us over the next hour and uh, a half or so are going to have a pretty good sense for the industrial economy. Uh, for the state of the consumer to a certain extent. And then there's AMD, which kind of stands alone in its own way. I mean, of all these companies at this point, Jim, it's probably the one whose business model you would most want to have right this very moment. Well, yeah, because you have um, Intel's business model faltering. Uh, you did have the stock yes. up 10 last week, and everyone, including me, thought, well, how much better can it get? And the answer is a lot better. I know. Look at that. A That's lot better. I mean, look at that. It is it is it is quite something. And of course, as I occasionally do, I will compliment you because you have been a supporter 
for quite some time and very positive on this stock since it was in the single digits. Yeah, single I mean, digits. there is a way that you actually do create wealth if well, you can hang on there uh, when a new CEO comes in with a new vision, as Lisa Sue did, and actually executes. Well, now, speaking of new CEOs, Carl you, mentioned, Carl, you mentioned eBay. This is Jamie Iannone's first interview. He is a new CEO at eBay. And he was very forceful on the conference call last night after the company reported earnings in terms of saying, hey, things have not gone as well as they could have here. We have not done a lot of things right and it will be interesting to speak with him later in the hour. Guys, we got a packed hour, so we don't want to waste any time. Let's get to our Phil LeBeau with the CEO of Boeing. Morning, Phil. Good morning, Carl. Let's bring in Dave Calhoun, CEO of Boeing, who is joining us today uh, just after the company reported Q2 results. Uh, Dave, thanks for joining us. I, I know Q2, you had a wider than expected loss. You've announced that you're cutting your production rates over the next couple of years. Uh, and yet at the same time, people basically have the same question for you that I hear all the time. What's the outlook when you look at airlines around the world over the next few years? Yeah, uh Following last quarter's outlook, when uh, you'll recall, we, we believe that the uh, industry would return to roughly 50% of service by the end of the year. We didn't know then that there'd be a sort of second wave of the virus and, of course, the cases and the extent to which they've traveled to leisure markets, uh, certainly here in the United States. So and I, from the near term perspective, things have gotten more difficult. Uh, flight schedules will probably not come back quite as quickly as I think our U.S. airline customers believe they would. They've already made and announced most of those adjustments. With respect to the long term, um, we still feel like three years is the right time frame. We've always believed that. If anything has changed on that front, it's that there's probably more optimism today about the vaccine and the notion that a vaccine would become widely distributed sometime over the course of 2021. In my view, that should add confidence to that eventual recovery three years from now. And the last comment I would make is just the experience of the airlines immediately following that first spike when we all believed it might be under control. Um, there was a pretty robust demand coming back into the marketplace. And for me, that just speaks to the underlying demand that exists and that I believe will ultimately fuel a return to growth for the industry in, uh, in the long term. But in the near term, as you mentioned, we are seeing weaker demand, not only here in North America, but around the world from airlines as they assess, do we need as many planes? Do we need to either cancel or push out our orders? You're out with a note this morning to employees saying, look, we're already in the midst of cutting 10 percent of our staffing to adjust to the re these uh, new realities. And now you're going to further assess uh, potential cuts in the future. What can you tell us about that? Well, the rates are going to come down from what we announced a, a, a quarter ago. Um, they're not going to come down in quite the, quite the uh, dramatic fashion that they did the first time. But we are going to delay sort of the, the re-ramp of our business. Um, and as a result, uh, we will have actions that we have to take over the course of this year into the middle of next year when we bring those rates down to more modest levels. Uh, we adjust these rates and consider the market pretty much every day because there is, just like you suggest, Bill, there is a customer calling us every day uh, with a desire to want to defer and to deal with the difficult environments that they're dealing with. You know, uh, Dave, Jim Kramer, 
Uh, good to see you be a little more optimistic. Uh, I do believe that one of the things that you guys have done right is cash. And then a second thing is cash. And the third thing is cash. I think you've taken some, some things off the table for investors and that you're right sizing the company uh, to match the demand. So when things come back, it's very possible that you could have an inflection point of earnings that may mean you actually have to buy the stock now. Could I be over optimistic or is the possibility vaccine return to travel, including business travel, quarantines and shortage of new planes because of so many planes need to be replaced? Well, Jim, that's the that 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 is my stump speech. And it's not a stump speech. I I believe that to my core. And so does our team. Um, I am optimistic. I've always been optimistic about the recovery of the industry. And as I said, uh, in light of all those circumstances you just described, including the eventuality of a vaccine and more and more confidence about that, I believe there is a chance in those second and third year out from now where um, we're going to be struggling to keep up with demand. Um, So I don't want to buy or sell stock at this moment on the basis of that. I'm not going to recommend anybody else does. But uh, it it is worth saying that we remain very confident in that future. And as I said, just that early recovery, just that early recovery post the first spike uh, and the fact that bookings came back and they came back fairly robustly, for me, says that the underlying demand equation still exists and that eventually we we will solve this. All right. Well, let's go a little deeper on that. Uh, One, I think people are starting to realize that an airplane is a farce with mass is a far safer place to be in than a building or an elevator, a physical structure. We're recognizing that. You don't hear people getting sick on planes. You don't. Not anyone who's taking care of themselves. And the second, the max. There was a time when I think it was front and center. We, we Look, you're never going to be able to take back the tragedy that happened. But 1,600 flights since the max, I think a lot of people in America are starting to think, wait a second, it's punitive at this point, safest playing around. Can these two things, the possibility that people recognize that plane, sa- plane safety is right there, both for actual safety of engines, but more importantly, safety against COVID is really not top of mind anymore. We are, we're accepting. I think that's happening. Yeah, I think that awareness war is being won. It it has a lot to do with a concerted effort on the part of regulators, uh, industry associations, our customers for sure, educating the public on what really happens in an airplane. It is not a trapped tube of air. In fact, as we've discussed, it refreshes itself every two or three minutes. It is processed through a HEPA filter. Um, There are a number of circumstances inside an airplane that, that provide for a safe environment. In addition, all the procedures that the airlines and the regulators have put in place to to ensure that sick people don't get on board an airplane, the requirement and or strong recommendation that masks be worn. This layer of protection works for the public. I believe it's a safer environment than many of the communities in which people live. And we have to believe that. So the education uh, is, in fact, happening. and And I believe the public's beginning to accept that that is a fact. With respect to the, with respect uh, to the max, yeah, uh, with respect to the 737. No, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. The, the, the progression, the certification progression has been fantastic. It's been thorough. It's been transparent. As you said, the airplane flies every day. It has incredible performance associated with it. And now we have to finish it. We have to finish it the right way, this process. 
with all the global regulators. And I'm confident that we will. Uh, and I have my hats off to the FAA. They've worked hard through this COVID virus. Um, they're doing the work. It's diligent. And uh, we're just going to stay confident. And we're going to follow their lead. Uh, yeah, Mr. Calhoun, sorry to interrupt you there. It's David Faber. Um, I wanted to get to the balance sheet. Certainly one of the moments uh, in the course of this pandemic from the financial perspective that was a positive one was when you went into the market and were able to borrow. I think it was $26 billion on that day. Uh, changed sort of a perception. But you have $32.5 billion roughly in cash and marketable securities, about $60 billion in overall uh, debt. Um, will you need to access the capital markets again, or are you satisfied with where you stand in terms of the cost cuts, in terms of the dividend not being paid at this point, in terms of suspending buybacks that you will not need to go to the capital markets again? Well, with, re- with respect to the forward look um, and the capital raise, uh, we think we're in a good place to get us from here to the environment that we just discussed uh, with Jim, a more optimistic environment. And then, then therefore, not having to go back to capital markets. On the other hand, you never say you never go back. Um, But we believe we have tested uh, difficult circumstances. We have uh, put every sensitivity analysis we think we know against what we've we've now described in our earnings announcement with respect to production rates. And we believe we're going to be in a good place and we can get through this with what we've raised. Um, That was always our intent. We're pleased that the capital markets responded. We're really pleased that the Fed opened up the credit markets the way they did. Um, and ultimately, uh, it played out well for us. Dave, speaking of being a little more optimistic, uh, May 12th, you went on the Today Show and said, I don't want to get too predictive on the subject, but yes, most likely a major U.S. carrier would have to go out of business. Uh, can we take that off the table? Yeah, I, let me put it in this perspective. Uh, Boeing serves a global marketplace. Um, In fact, most of our orders come from outside the United States and all kinds of uh, uh, jurisdictions. There are bankruptcies going on today. Um, And at the time of that interview, there were bankruptcies that were apparent to us. If you're the Boeing company and you produce airplanes, you always have to consider bankruptcies in that process. What I will say is that the government's support, the CARES Act in round one, whatever ultimately gets played out here in round two, I believe has been incredibly effective with our U.S. carriers. It has kept them alive. It's kept the footprint fresh. They are warm. They can take delivery of new airplanes when that day comes. And so all that said, I think they're in as good a place as they can be. And they're an incredibly competent group of CEOs. Um, It is still pragmatic for Boeing to look at that global landscape and ultimately have to deal with bankruptcies because they're happening as we speak. So that's, that's, that's probably the finest lens I can put on it. Dave, it's Phil again. Uh, You've had negative 700 and some odd planes uh, in terms of orders this year. Your backlog is shrinking. It's not growing. When does that change? You've had six straight months of negative orders. When When do you foresee that changing? Should we write off the rest of this year? Do you think that maybe in the fourth quarter or early next year you start to see airlines or leasing companies saying, yeah, we're ready to order again? Well, I think it's the, you know, it's sort of the discussion we've been having all along here. It's it's that moment in time when the really healthy airlines, and there are going to be a bunch that emerge in better shape and better health than others. The minute they think they can gain an advantage by building out their fleet, refreshing their fleet, um, and that the virus, the worst of the virus is behind them, then that's when that, that'll happen. And it'll happen in different jurisdictions at different times. 
you know, uh, China, Europe seem to have a little more control over their uh, environments than, than the U.S. does at the moment. But it'll happen, and I, I, I believe somewhere in that, again, depending on a vaccine and the success and distribution of a vaccine, somewhere in the second half of next year, I'm hopeful that this worm turns. Second half of next year. We'll, we'll hopefully, I think a lot of people are hoping it's sooner than that. One last question, Dave. Uh, a lot of us, our first flight ever was on a 747. It is an iconic aircraft. I don't have to tell you. You know it uh, firsthand. Was it a tough decision to say it's time to stop building it? Yeah, it's been a tough decision for quite a long time. Um, you know, this is just a, a facing reality with respect to the market. Um, and the new airplanes that are available, uh, uh, the 777X being a, a significant part of that puzzle. Our customers want the new airplanes. They want the new technologies. The 47 has been unbelievable. And the only comment I would make with respect to Boeing and the 47 franchise is we are going to deliver airplanes out through 2022. Um, and then we're going to support those airplanes for the next 30 years. This franchise is far from over. Um, it's an incredible one. Uh, started in the late 60s, if you can imagine. Um, and so, yes, it's emotional for everyone. But we believe that, uh, that in 22, we will end production. Dave Calhoun, CEO of Boeing. Thank you, Dave, for joining us here on Squawk Box this morning, or Squawk on the Street, excuse me. Carl, I'll send it back to you, and I think everybody would agree. Uh, you, see, you hear a tone of optimism there from Dave that I'm not sure we heard when we talked with him after the first quarter. Uh, certainly an evolution from just a couple months ago, Phil. As always, our thanks to you uh, for bringing it to us. That's our Phil LeBeau uh, in Chicago. We're not nearly done. we got the CEOs of JetBlue, uh, GE, eBay, Starbucks, and AMD. Lisa Sue, of course, with an earnings triple play, uh, raising guidance. There's a look at our schedule today. Don't go anywhere. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Sometimes you have success stories that are so exciting in the stock market that it takes your mind off of things like COVID or uh, politics, anything that depresses you. And one of them is AMD and the story of what Lisa Sue has done here. Stock is surging 10% ahead of the bell. Chipmaker upgraded all over the place. Guidance for the year, fantastic. A huge earnings beat. So let's find out how this happened and let's talk exclusively to CEO Lisa Sue. Lisa, it is truly fabulous to have you. Hey, good morning, Jim. It's great to be here with you guys this morning. All right, so let's get there. One of the things that I find most interesting, uh, despite the fact that everybody wants to talk about a competitor, and I'm going to do it too, that may have uh, made a mistake, you have a roadmap. Throughout this, you talk about a roadmap. Sometimes I feel like it's a roadmap of Italy. But could you explain to people how you have taken the destiny of AMD and put it in, in charge of you, not in charge of the customers? Well, Jim, look, um, what I would say is uh, we are in um, very important markets. I mean, when you look at the things that are powering our data centers and infrastructure or um, our work from home, school from home, you know, PCs, 
these are really important things um, for the market. And you know, we're, we've been focused on this for you know many years, and it's all about delivering you know high performance computing, helping our customers um, you know do the things that the most essential items that they need to do. And um, you know, the fact that our roadmap has been very consistent and uh, strong over the last couple of years um, has resulted in you know some good results. So we're, we're very pleased. Uh, with our second quarter results, I think um, you know a lot of things came together um, in our business, but it's um, it's really a result of you know just a, a long-term journey around uh, delivering great products to the market. Well, that did not seem to be the case when you ported last. I felt that when you decided uh, that you shied away from guidance, you had gotten away from the notion that you had a long-term plan. Uh, obviously, that's changed. What occurred to make it so that you have a vision that I didn't feel you had last quarter? Well, I think what we um, we have is, you know, there are there are a lot of uncertainties, right? When you look at the macro, when you look at the impact of COVID-19, we wanted to make certain that we understood all of the various puts and takes. Um, but what came together, you know, for us in the second quarter is a couple things. Um, you know, first of all, um, our server business had its highest ever um, quarter. You know, we had um, a number of um, the top cloud manufacturers really ramp. Um, on our products for their most essential services. Um, we had our PC business. You know, the fact is, um, you know, PCs are now essential. And uh, so we had our notebook business uh, with the uh, highest uh, ever quarter where, um, you know, we saw a strong ramp across. And um, and then now as we look through the second half of the year, look, there's no question. There's a lot of uncertainty. You know, we're watching like everybody is what, what happens in the macro. Um, but we we feel good about the markets. You know, we feel good that the PC market looks strong. Uh, we have a a great gaming cycle that's coming up with uh, the new game consoles and our data center business um, also um, looks strong. And so, you know, we look at that and we say, hey, you know, despite the uncertainty, uh, we have a very strong roadmap. Um, our customers want, um, you know, to uh, to partner more deeply, and uh, we see revenue, you know, growing now 32 percent uh, year over year. Yeah, uh, unbelievable revenue growth. At the same time, we all have to be conscious of the fact. I'll let Susquehanna say it because I don't want to be the guy who singles it out. That Susquehanna is saying that it's possible you could have 20 percent server share up from single digits today. Uh, a lot of that has to be that a competitor, Intel, a company when I first met you was. I was telling you that I was an Intelliholic and was scoffing at what AMD could do. And you schooled me, put me in, the pl- in my place. But is it possible that you could get up to that share from single-digit share? Well, we had a, um, a very good second quarter in the sense that uh, you know, we met our – one of our key goals was meeting um, double-digit market share in uh, the server market. And you know, based on um, our result, uh, we, we've met that milestone. Look, I, I think this is a multi-year journey. I've always talked to you about a multi-year journey. Uh, you know, we're in the business of high performance. It takes many, many years uh, to develop uh, these products. Um, we're excited about our roadmap. You know, we have um, a new set of products that are coming out in late 2020 for uh, both um, our, our servers as well as as our, as our PCs and gaming markets. And so we're excited about those products. Um, we're going to keep focusing on delivering the best. And that's in, in 2020, you know, it's 2021, 2022. It's really about um, being very consistent and ensuring that, uh, you know, we're working on um, delivering that high performance to the market. Hey, Lisa, in terms of analyst commentary, it does seem like the bear case centers around some kind of price war that would develop in the second half and put your uh, your second half guidance at risk. What's the best argument against that? 
You know, Carl, I think the best thing to say is um, it's a competitive market, no question. It's always been a competitive market. Um, you know, but our focus is on, you know, playing our game. And it's about um, introducing new products. It's about, you know, what our customers are trying to achieve. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to optimize and ensure that we're, um, you know, delivering um, that to the marketplace. So, you know, no doubt it's a competitive market, but we feel really good about our position. Um, we feel really good about the fact that technology is becoming even more important um, in this, uh, you know, COVID and post-COVID war um, that uh, that we're in. And um, the way we look at it is, you know, we want to ensure that, you know, we're playing the long game. And so, you know, as important as this quarter is and next quarter is, it's more important that we um, continue to uh, get onto the most important workloads that our customers are trying to do. And, uh, you know, that's what we're focused on. Right, hey, Lisa, this is uh, something I've got to ask. Uh, you're teaming up with Da Vinci. It kind of surprised. I'm sorry, not Da Vinci. I mentioned some Wong. Uh, whom you know quite well. This NVIDIA partnership where NVIDIA selected AMD's Epic processor. I have to tell you, I thought that was Epic with an I. Are you two um, working together well? And I, I've always felt that you guys were enemies, not frenemies. Well, you know, in, in the tech market, I think um, there are partnerships and there are competitors and, you know, we mix and match a little bit. Um, look, we are, um, you know, pleased and um, happy to be uh, within the next uh, NVIDIA um, AI systems. I think, uh, you know, they are a very good company and, and they uh, they chose our processors because, uh, you know, we were the best in the marketplace. Um, I look at that as, you know, validation of some of the other, um, you know, large, uh, large customers that we're working with. I think the, the key for us is, look, we, we, we want to push the envelope. You know, this is all about delivering more than you could do, um, you know, last year and the year before. And so, um, yes, there there are... Um, lots of partnerships that are important to us, and um, you know we're happy and to be selected. I, I was hoping that you would guide up on margins with guiding up on revenue, and I actually thought that one day you could be up to the holy grail of sixty sixty two, the Andy Grove level, which says if you're not at that, you're not a real serious company. Any chance that that could happen? Well, you know, we uh, just went through um, in March. We went through um, our long-term financial model, and you know, our long-term model says you know we get to, to greater than fifty percent margins. It's going to be a steady march. Uh, you know, no question that uh, it depends a lot on our product execution. It depends a lot on the mix of our business. Um, but you know, our view is: look, our our goals are you know deliver on the top line. You know, grow revenue. Um, at a um, compound annual growth rate of over 20% over the next couple of years, you know, grow the bottom line um, as well as, uh, you know, grow margins. So I think, um, again, part of that multi-year story is a steady progress each year. You did say on the call, in enterprise, we have significantly expanded our total addressable market. I thought that was one of the most bullish lines of the quarter. Please explain. Yeah, so I think the um, the enterprise market is one that you know takes a while. If you think about how Fortune 1000 companies make decisions, you know they're they're you know the, the top CIOs um, in in the world really want to make sure that they're making a long term bet. So they're not just betting on this generation, but they're betting that you have um, a long term roadmap. And so you know we've made um, good progress um, in the enterprise market. Uh, we've also expanded our um, number of platforms and, and number of workloads that we can address. And so this is all part of this uh, notion that um, it's a step-by-step journey. Um, you know, the products right now are really good. Um, the products next year will be even better. 
And, uh, you know, our, our goal is to make sure that uh, we're partnered deeply with, um, you know, cloud customers, enterprise customers. You know, we're very big into supercomputing. Um, supercomputing is really important, um, you know, these days for all of the medical research as well as, um, you know, many of the, uh, the other key applications. So, so our goal is to really, um, you know, specialize in this area uh, of, uh, of high performance computing and deliver um, you know, those um, improvements uh, to the marketplace. So increasing the TAM is all about just addressing more of, of the space. All right, well, Lisa, your prowess is uh, only exceeded by your humility. Congratulations on another great quarter, which I think you might have been able to do despite the fact that there was a competitor that slipped up. Always great to see you. Thank you so much. Great being with you guys this and morning. Back to you, Carl. Uh, Jim, uh, stay with us. Obviously, we're going to get the opening bell here and a look at the S&P heat map as it fills in. There's going to be a lot of names, Jim, that we probably will uh, slip through the cracks today. Want to make sure Shopify is not one of them, though, (laughs) as revenue uh, just a blowout up 97 percent. GMV, 30 billion. We were looking for 20 billion. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Jeff Bezos is being grilled uh, by the House Senate, uh, the House Committee on uh, uh, really basis on monopoly, I will call it that. And he doesn't have to. I, I want to rewrite my speech if I'm Jeff Bezos. I say, listen, uh, I'd like to get started by saying Shopify's beating the heck out of us. So, uh, hey, we got no monopoly. You should be talking to those guys because <laughs> Shopify is just on fire. And whose business are they taking? They're eating Amazon's lunch. So I think that the house ought to get a little more familiar with a small Canadian company that's no longer small, that if it was bought by an American company and they refused to do so, you would say, you know what? I, I it be- Bezos, yeah, he was really good and he did a really terrific job. I'm looking at Shopify. Uh, that stock may not even yeah. stop here. Uh, It's all time high right there, Jim. Do you believe, given all that, that Bezos going into this hearing has the least liability? No, unfortunately, because uh, there's just this always this contingent of small business people that have to be uh, uh, catered to by people's constituency, you know, by the constituency. This is who elects them. Uh, He has to be skewered. Uh, uh, Tim Cook less skewered. I have no idea what's going to happen Google. And if Mark Zuckerberg plays it right, he can talk about how his product has created more jobs. Uh, and it's actually uh, the Instagram shops has been the answer to the pandemic. So, no, no, Jeff's on, Jeff Bezos is on the hot seat. Uh, Tim knows the hot. Tim is like, hey, you know what? He's like on the Jenkins hot seat on the side in the NFL. He's been there before. He'll do a good job. They're not going to talk about China. That's much more of a Navarro uh, Trump thing. He, he'll do fine. Uh, but I think it's Jeff. I just gave him his narrative. He's got to switch it up. He's got to go Shopify. Has to educate people about how he's getting his head handed to him. Well, you know, Jim, you should explain that to people because they don't op- they don't operate in direct competition, Shopify and Amazon across the board. But you should explain where the competition is in terms of Shopify's business for those who perhaps are not following the stock that closely. I would like to do business with Shopify if I'm a retailer because Shopify is my friend. Uh, They'll even advance me money. Uh, I have always felt from an excellent documentary that was, um, geez, David, you're probably familiar with it, that Amazon competed against its (laughs) and competed against the people whom Shopify actually gives money to. 
And uh, and tell me, David, that is, that doc told me that Shopify that uh, Amazon's rapacious and Shopify is friendly. And that's if anything, uh, if they in Congress, if they've heard of Shopify, they should say, you know what, you should start doing some things that Shopify does, which is really help some of these companies rather than hinder them. I think that Bezos can do that without a problem. But Shopify is exhibit A of what of the companies who are small, who will one day be big and they're not going to Amazon. They're going to stick with Shopify. Right. They're using the Shopify platform. And you are you are referring, of course, to third party sellers on the Amazon platform, such an important component of their overall revenues from retail. Let's not forget, of course, Amazon is also AWS. It's also advertising, very significant, particularly from a profit perspective. But those third party sellers, we pointed out years ago when we did the documentary and it's only increased, sure to get some attention today, Carl, in terms of Amazon competing against them, getting the data, uh, understanding what's selling and then just going into business, sourcing the same thing in some way and selling perhaps at a cheaper level. That said, these sellers are aware of it going into business with Amazon originally. They know that this is a risk they take, but the platform itself Mm. is so ubiquitous that they have to use it. Yeah, we'll see if that same argument can be made with the App Store, right? I mean, developers, get they, they know the deal yeah. going in, uh, but clearly the size of the App Store is what's raising uh, some eyebrows. Uh, Jim, the other one here, uh, Visa, even though a lot of uh, value is working today, uh, and despite the beat, fiscal profit down 23. I see Moffitt makes it a top pick. They go to 250. Yeah, I like I like Lee Sells' piece, which talks about how what's really going on. Still conversion from cash to credit card and, and contactless. It's a COVID play. Uh, and I think that that's going to be what is the narrative going forward, which is why the stock could end up being up. Talk about being up. How about a stock that has spent a lot of time in the doghouse of late? And I'm talking about Starbucks where a lot of people just felt, you know what, I guess that was um, that was a great company at one time. Well, it's back. It's rallying this morning. Investors are shrugging off the, the coffee chain's law, losses, which have been substantial, okay? Uh, and they're thinking about the future. And why? Because Kevin Johnson actually laid out a course of the future that I thought was incredibly strong. First on CNBC, Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. Kevin, you did it. Good work. Well, Jim, David, Carl, good morning. How are you guys? Couldn't be better. And what I love, why? Because I love the fact that you have come up with a strategy, a COVID strategy that will transcend and uh, even after COVID and whether it be curbside or what I think you should talk about, which is very exciting. The new, I'm going to call them Starbucks Express. There are so many open storefronts in this country. You've got a balance sheet. You can put stores where you do not have to worry about social distancing because the line moves. And uh, I think you should talk about the new way that retail can work in an era where crowds are an anathema. Well, Jim, certainly this last four months has been a very dynamic period. You know, and if you recall back in March uh, when we were working to close our stores and, and provide economic certainty for our partners and take care of the frontline healthcare workers, we put people over profit. And so certainly we think that was a very, very important thing to do because it reinforced our mission and values and it built trust. It really helped strengthen the long-term brand uh, attributes that Starbucks stands for. Certainly as we reopen stores, we now have operationalized the store protocols and the way that we can run these stores, the digital dashboard that helps our store managers around the world. So clearly we we now are in a position where we can navigate anything that this global pandemic uh, will do around the world. 
what you're pointing to is, is the, we've accelerated some strategic initiatives that really future-proof the company. And uh, when you look at disruptions, you know, I spent 32 years in the tech industry, and whenever there's a technology disruption, it is those companies that recognize the disruption, invest in ways that further differentiate their, their brand, their offerings, their services, that are the big winners. Those that fail to do that are left behind. And so that's exactly what we've done. We've looked at uh, what COVID-19 has created in terms of a disruption in consumer behavior and figured out how to accelerate strategic initiatives that we already had in our strategy, but we're accelerating those to really position Starbucks to better serve customers, not only in the COVID-19 world, but beyond. And so what you're highlighting are, are these stores, the fact that you know, we see today that our drive-through stores in suburban markets are performing extremely well. Why? Customers want experiences that are safe, familiar, and convenient. So you think about in urban core markets, how do we do that? We have traditional Starbucks stores today. We are now building these Starbucks pickup stores. In China, we call them Starbucks Now. So you think of these, these are the equivalent of, of a walkthrough store. You think about it's a much smaller footprint. It's all geared towards mobile ordering and a very convenient service. Now, these Starbucks pickup stores typically will be located within three to five minute walk of a traditional Starbucks store. So if you as a customer want to go share your coffee and, and, and food and, and have a, a sit down with a business colleague or a family member or friend, you can walk to a, a regular Starbucks store and sit in a cafe. If, though, you're on the go and you want to pick up your coffee on the way to work or on the way to school, these Starbucks pickup stores are going to be for you. So it's blending those store formats to really create a network effect in these urban core markets. And so that's where we're going. Now, I think a lot of people look at a number, particularly people who are not familiar with the company. America's comparable store sales declined 41 percent. And they said, well, this is just crazy. The stock's up three dollars and 70 cents. But there is a thing called cadence, and the cadence was extraordinary, uh, June good. But I think you've got to tell people what happened in July, because I think July is a, an arbinger of what can happen for the rest of the year. Well, you know, certainly as we, as we monitor this, we look at, uh, at same-store comps. And, you know, across both uh, our two lead growth markets, the U.S. and China, we saw uh, our comparable uh, store sales improve again from the month of June to July. In fact, you know, we finished the month of June in the U.S. at a 19, uh, minus 19 percent comp. And in the month of July, uh, we gained five more points in comp. So we, we finished July in minus 14 percent comp in the U.S. But the most important thing, Jim, is I look at the leading indicators. And so there's three things that I look at. Number one, I look at our customer connection scores, and they are at an all-time high. And that's a signal that what we've done with our store protocols is resonating with our customers. And the digital reach that we have is now bringing those customers back into our store. So that momentum is continuing. I also look at the brand affinity scores. This is how customers perceive Starbucks and the Starbucks top of mind. And certainly those brand affinity scores have strengthened as we have come out of uh, reopening stores and in this period. And then finally, when I look at our market share numbers, certainly in the month of April when we had all our stores closed, you know, I kind of ignore that month because when you're closed, you're not going to gain a lot of share. In the month of May, our market share was flat, uh, but then when we hit uh, the month of June, that market share is taking off. So customer connection scores strong, brand affinity strong, market share gains in the month of June. And so, you know, look, we, we have now woven into our operating cadence how to navigate this global pandemic in every market around the world. The recovery is working, 
And we are now accelerating initiatives to future-proof the company. Kevin, speaking about markets around the world, I want to focus on China, where you are largely entirely open. Uh, In fact, I think you opened 100 new stores in the country during the course of the quarter. What have you learned from China in terms of dealing with the virus and obviously uh, the reopening there that you can then transport back to the United States? Well, you know, David, as you point out, you know, we, this virus uh, started to spread in China long before it, uh, it came to the United States and other markets around the world. So back in January, as, as we began really focusing on supporting uh, Belinda Wong and Leo and our team in China, uh, we, we learned the store protocols that allowed us to open our stores in ways that were safe, safe for our Starbucks partners and safe for our customers. Now, those store protocols that were created in China were then uh, imported to the U.S. and adapted for the U.S. and adapted for other markets. So all the store protocols that we're using you know, were originally created in China, and now we've adapted them in other markets around the world. In addition, the key thing we've learned in China is that once you reopen, you have to monitor the situation of spread of COVID in every city across the country. And then if you see that there's a resurgence of cases, of COVID cases, you're able to, in that city, you know, carefully turn the dial back, basically constrain some of the customer experiences to help support government and uh, health officials as they work to contain it. That learning translated into a digital dashboard that we now have in place that uses some of the artificial intelligence software we have that we call Deep Brew that helps inform our store managers what's happening with COVID, what are customer uh, preferences in that particular market, and what are we seeing with partner sentiment. That helps inform them what store protocols to use. So a lot of what we've done in China, we have now operationalized in the United States and around the world. Hey, Kevin, you got a lot of investors uh, tracking high frequency data that is not seasonally adjusted, very volatile, things like Chase card spending and open table and Google mobility, uh, which do suggest that we've at least stabilized, flattened, maybe come down a bit. Is that being reflected in anything you're seeing in July? Well, look, this, uh, you know, the, the recovery process, the plans that we have in place, they're working, uh, you know, Carl, and, and, and we continue to execute against those. Now, look, until there's a vaccine and, and more therapeutics, we're all going to live in this world with COVID, and we all have to be mindful of that. So the journey won't be linear, but I'm very optimistic that, you know, as a company, we have really operationalized how we're going to deal with this, and, uh, and, and it's working. And so, uh, you know, we're continuing to monitor. It's, it's different in different parts of the world. You know, there was a resurgence of cases in Beijing and the government, you know, really was, was, was cautious. They tested everyone. We dialed back in those stores. You know, we have and now China's, you know, Beijing and China's back on the front foot. You look at, uh, you know, what's happening in Florida, Texas, you know, being cautious there. So this is just the world we live in. But, you know, we're able to now do that. And I believe we're going to keep driving this recovery. I have full confidence in my Starbucks partners. I have full confidence in how we put this together. And in addition, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the future. I'm enthusiastic about these strategic initiatives that, you know, Jim highlighted at the top of this, at this call is, you know, we are really now embracing some new ways to blend new store formats, to really leverage digital and continue to drive beverage and food innovation that's, relative, that's relevant to our customers. And that's going to serve us well for the long term. Um, Kevin, I wanted to come back to China briefly. 
it can't, it can't uh, escape your attention, of course, the deterioration in relationship between the U.S. and China. Um, how worrisome is that for you from a business perspective? And is there a break the glass plan at Starbucks? Should we uh, embark on a new Cold War with China? Well, you know, David, we've been in China now over 20 years. Uh, and uh, ever since we entered China, we've, we've really had the mindset that we are building Starbucks in China for China. And what that means is our, our team in China is completely self-sufficient. We, we have the people in China that run the real estate, that design the stores, that invent the food and beverage, that operate the stores. We hire local Chinese uh, craftsmen that build our stores, uh, you know, artisans that, that come and, and, and create these great stores. And, and, uh, and, and we continue to invest in China. And I think uh, because we are in China and we've done this in a, a way that's respectful to the culture and, uh, and we value the relationships that we have in China, you know, I, I feel like we're going to navigate this just fine. But, you know, certainly we, you know, we think about the range of alternatives. But right now, I think, you know, our business is healthy. We just crossed 4,400 stores. We're, you know, I think we've, we've said, look, this, this fiscal year alone, we're building over 500 new stores in China, net new stores. And so we're going to continue to grow. We just announced uh, a couple months ago a $130 million investment in a global roasting plant in China. And certainly that's, that's there to serve uh, you know, Asia, but also serve the world in terms of uh, roasting coffee for okay. Starbucks. And uh, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish uh, in terms of China for the long term, but I also recognize the geopolitical situation is a bit, is a bit tense. And uh, you know, we're gonna stay focused on what we do and what we do well. And that's uh, handcrafted beverages and taking care of our customers and being respectful and, and, and creating that warm, welcoming environment in our stores. And uh, I think that will serve as well. All right. So, Kevin, I hate to, to truncate you, but I do need a quick one. On this July 15th, you said that uh, customers required to wear masks. You know, I'm a big believer in masks. We talk a lot. And I've got a contest going on for masks. Uh, was there an acceleration in business when you told people, listen, let's get some masks on? Because people no longer feel like when you get a triple vente cappuccino with skin wet, you're taking your life in your hands. Well, Jim, you know, we, when we reopened stores, we required all Starbucks partners to wear masks in reopening. Why? Because we know it works. We know that wearing masks helps uh, reduce the spread of the virus. We know that uh, washing hands helps reduce the spread of the virus. We know that social distancing helps reduce the spread of the virus. So we built that into all, all of our safety protocols. And when we first reopened stores, we respectfully requested that customers wear a mask. And certainly, uh, you know, many of them did. Uh, but as we saw, you know, the, the, the importance of, of, of wearing masks, more and more states were mandating. It just made sense to do that across the country. And I think that gives great confidence, not only in our Starbucks partners, but the customers we serve, that this is a safe, familiar and convenient experience. And, and you can come to Starbucks and you can, uh, you know, enjoy your favorite handcrafted beverage, your favorite food item and feel safe. And so uh, I think this has been a very positive step. Uh, not only for Starbucks, but for, for the country and for society. And I, I think, uh, like you, I, I believe that, you know, this is something we can all do as citizens. It's something we can do as businesses. And so we have a responsibility uh, to do that, to care for ourselves and care for others uh, that in, 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 uh, in our country. Amen. Kevin Johnson, stock up nicely. Congratulations. CEO of Starbucks. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Call guys. back to you. All right, uh, Jim, thanks for that. We're getting some uh, headlines regarding uh, TikTok and the ongoing discussions on the Hill about extension of benefits. Let's get to Eamon Javers. Eamon? 
Yeah, Carl, that's right. The president and the Treasury Secretary just stopped to talk to reporters briefly at the White House on their departure. The president uh, suggesting that they're still far apart now in their negotiations with Democrats on a coronavirus relief bill, but seeming to signal that he is willing to negotiate on the issue of eviction and also on the issue of payments to Americans, whether that is those direct payments or unemployment insurance. The president seeming to signal a little bit of wiggle room there. Uh, And then also on TikTok, the Treasury Secretary said, saying uh, that TikTok is under review by the federal government. The president saying uh, he might make a decision at some point. No indication of what that decision would be. Uh, and, David, you know that they have a number of options here. The federal government could block TikTok, TikTok entirely. Uh, they could require them to divest and sell to an American owner. Or they could negotiate with TikTok and come up with some set of rules and regulations that would satisfy the U.S. government that American data is not being abused there. So no indication or ha- uh, hat tip yet in terms of which direction they're going in, but they do say they're considering it, David. Yeah, and I've been following it closely, as you know, Eamon. ByteDance, of course, the Chinese parent of TikTok. That company, ByteDance, valued as much as $130 billion. The question is, what will the value of TikTok be? Can they sell a majority to a U.S. owner in some way, to your point, redomicile right. it? They're trying to figure it all out while they get these messages from the administration. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers with the latest on what's going on on the Hill and everything else. Uh, Let's get back to uh, interviews after this break. eBay CEO, new CEO, will join us for his first TV interview. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Shares of eBay are down a bit uh, this after what, of course, has been a very strong performance for the stock price. Uh, there's concern about a deceleration in the growth rate at the company, given how strong things have been. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive is Jamie Iannone. He is the president and CEO of eBay. And Jamie, I want to start off on what was your first conference call, of course, as CEO, because you were very blunt. You said we're not satisfied with where we currently stand. And the reality is that uh, the past few years we have not executed to our full potential. So briefly, if you can, what are you going to do and focus on to change that so that eBay does execute at its full potential? Well, thanks, David, and thanks for having me on this morning. Um, Yeah, so, you know, since I've been back, I think there's lots of areas of opportunity. Uh, I'm not satisfied with where we are, and and I see enormous upside potential uh, in really getting back and focused on the customer experience. I'm planning on leading what I'm calling the tech-led reimagination of eBay. And that's using our technology and next-gen compelling experiences in three different areas. First, 
building compelling experiences in, in key verticals that are really core to eBay, and also getting back to our consumer selling, uh, that's individual selling, which is really important to, to the platform. Second is being the seller platform of choice, uh, especially around non-new in season. We've got a, a $500 billion opportunity in the core of what eBay is great at in non-new in season, and being the seller platform of choice there is a huge opportunity. And then third is building lifelong buyer relationships, trusted buyer relationships. We've got new buyers coming into the platform all of the time, a ton this quarter, uh, but really turning them into enthusiasts. So through those three components, that's the plan to really um, uh, drive this tech-led reimagination of eBay. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, investors obviously have benefited, as the company has, from the pandemic, from so many people shopping at home, revisiting eBay, perhaps, or using it for the first time. But in speaking to some investors this morning, a number of them say, listen, given what you're talking about in the second half of the year, they don't feel confident in the sustainability of your growth. How do you answer that? Well, look, this quarter we've seen 8 million new buyers come onto the platform. That's more than the last six quarters combined. Um, and what we've seen is that while growth moderates as mobility opens up in countries, obviously we're a global country, we, uh, company, we have lots of countries around the world, but it's sustaining at a higher level. So we feel really good about, about the new buyers coming in, all the things that we're doing to keep them on the platform, uh, getting them to download the app, et cetera. And what we're really focused on is building a long-term, sustainable, healthy business, um, delighting buyers and sellers in their experiences on the site. You are no longer attached to PayPal in the sense of having to use them. What is that freedom going to allow eBay to do when it comes to potentially an opportunity for you in payments? Yeah, so we, we've announced that we're launching managed payments, which is the ability to manage payments directly on the platform. It's great for buyers and it's great for sellers. For buyers, it's really seamless um, because they come in, they don't have to create a separate account. They can manage that whole transaction really seamlessly on eBay. And sellers really love managed payments because they can manage their whole business in, in one area on the site. In the vast majority of cases, David, they're going to be paying lower fees on the platform. And thus far, all of the sellers that have joined have been really pleased with the experience of managed payments. So just two weeks ago, we expanded. We had been live in uh, the U.S. and in Germany. We expanded that to U.K., Canada, and Australia. Uh, PayPal will continue to be a very important partner for us. You can still pay via PayPal on the platform, but the managed payments experience really makes it seamless. And when I talk about a technology-led reimagination, uh, managed payments is a good example of that. We've committed that by 2022, that'll bring $2 billion of revenue and $500 million of operating income to the bottom line. So also great for the overall business by doing managed payments on the platform. All right, Jamie, I'm going to solve your problem here. The stock's down. I go to the site, up to 60% off uh, Reebok. Uh, come on, man. Uh, StockX, one of the most exciting sites on earth. Probably for sale. Make a bid. Get the mojo back. Could you do it by the end of the day? Yeah, Jim, you know, I think what you're talking about is really what is important to me coming back to lead this company. You know, I've been back 100 days and I'm really focused on those vertical experiences. So speak uh, experiences like in sneakers that you're talking about, um, experiences in our core categories where we're really great, whether that's luxury items or collectibles or fashion or parts and accessories. How do we get back as eBay and make sure that we're building the absolute best experience for buyers and sellers to transact on that categories? I think what you're seeing with some of those vertical competitors and niche competitors is that there's a lot of untapped potential for us. They're going out and getting GMV, which frankly should be transacted on the eBay platform. Right. 
So a big focus for me on this multi-year journey is making sure that those types of transactions happen on eBay. We build the features, the, the capabilities, and the trust in the platform such that that GMV is showing up on our site. Right. Well, you, you could roll them up. You could roll up the, the real real. You, you, could, you could roll up Brent the runway. I mean, the world's your oyster here. Uh, but you got to get away from eBay. Because core eBay does not have the growth that we want. You got the capital. Why don't become? Why don't you become the one-stop shop for everything that you want to build? Every stock exchange that is not for stocks can be yours. Yeah, you know when I when I think about uh, what's happened over the last couple of years, I think we were chasing the new in-season product and not really focused on the core. So I think you're right, Jim. That our opportunity is really in that core. When you think about non-new in-season, that's a five hundred billion dollar opportunity. And we're low single-digit percentages of, of that market share. So it's a huge TAM for us to go after and make sure that we're capturing. Bringing sellers on that have yeah. that inventory, making sure that buyers have a great experience, that's a key focus for us. We will always opportunistically look at M&A and find opportunities to bring capabilities now that we're really focused on the marketplace business and accelerate that. But we think there's a lot of work to do, frankly, just in the overall experience, making it better for buyers and sellers. Uh, and keeping buyers on the platform for a lifetime. Well, speaking of M&A, of course, you did a large deal in terms of divesting. It was the classifieds business, a $9.2 billion deal. But Jamie, to the surprise of some, you decided to keep a 44% interest in the combined company, Adavinto, which is the buyer of it. Why not have just sold classifieds for cash, used some of it, obviously, to invest in the way that you're talking about, others to buy back more of your stock, as opposed to having a 44% stake in a foreign company? You know, we think this is a fantastic combination. When you look at the transfer of the assets of eBay's classifieds group into Adaventa, it creates the world's largest online classifieds group. In 20 markets, it's the number one leading market share, which is a fabulous company. In addition, for shareholders, it allows us to capture value in the short term uh, and also participate in the long-term upside of this fabulous business. And the third thing it does is now that we've divested StubHub and we've um, uh, transferred our assets for classifieds, it allows the whole management team, technology, et cetera, to focus on the, on the core marketplace business where we see there's a lot of untapped potential. Jamie, we appreciate your joining us uh, to fill us in, and we will continue to be focused on that core marketplace business as well. Look forward to uh, getting your updates along the way. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jim. Excellent. Jamie Iannone is the president and CEO of eBay. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.